listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. As entrepreneurs, each of us are unique in the problem that we solve and the solution that we offer to our customers. However, the majority of us do have one common goal, and that is to become a millionaire through our businesses. My guest today is Kent Billingsley. Kent is the CEO of Revenue Growth Company and the author of Entrepreneur to Millionaire. Throughout this episode, Kent explains to us a framework for turning our businesses into profit machines. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 084. And now get ready to build a highly profitable, fast-growing company and become rich along the way. Here is my conversation with Kent Billingsley. Kent, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to have you here today. I was actually just finishing up reading your book, and we've, we've already had a long discussion about it before we hit record here. We probably should have been recording a while ago, but, but here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm excited too. Yeah. Great to be here today. For sure. And, you know, I actually want to mention quickly that you had Mark Cuban write the Ford in your book. And when we were talking about it, you mentioned that he, he did this completely on his own. He picked up a copy of your book and, and read it and decided to leave this Ford. That, that's incredible. It's really cool that you have that, uh, that level of influence with, with someone like Mark Cuban. Yeah, we actually, we actually go back almost 40 years as friends. We went to the same college but didn't know each other in college, and we met down in Dallas. And um, I, I've watched him traverse through his career and, and him watch me, and uh, we've been close, very close friends. And, and he said when I, when I finished the book to get him a copy, and then he wanted to leave his comments. And, uh, yeah, he, uh, I, I, I love the, the point he said, I, I wish I would have had this book when I started, and it's a must-read. And, and that's uh, – that's all genuine and authentic. And I, I, I didn't write it or encourage him to say anything. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And actually, I felt the same way after reading it. As I told you, I kind of had the two perspectives when I was actually reading this book, because it was just at the end of my aerospace uh, career of 15 years. So I wanted to think of it from that perspective, but also from my new startup Podmatch. I want to think of it from both perspectives. Could it work in both places? And I really pulled a lot from this as well. So for me, as I mentioned, this is gonna be a bit of a guide along the way as I'm growing my business. And I, I hope that today we can really help the listeners as well to do the same thing. So to start this conversation off, I want to just mention something that you said in the intro of it. And you talked about how we have all been following myths about being successful as entrepreneurs. Can you talk about these myths a little bit and what we've all kind of been led to believe that isn't necessarily directly true? Yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting myths uh, that are floating around today, and they've been floating around for decades. And, and uh, what's uh, interesting is uh, some of these things worked in the past, but uh, what's happened today is they're not working. We're in a different century, a different mindset, a different uh, competitive stance. We're dealing with things such as pandemics. I mean, the, the whole world has changed on the outside, but too many businesses are still operating like the 1980s, 1990s. And so one of the, one of the great myths that, that, that I come across almost daily, and I work with companies and teams all throughout the week, is that, um, that if we start, run, and grow a business, we'll be successful. And, of course, the word successful has defi different definitions to different people. But in most cases, successful means the business is making so much money that they're strong on uh, cash on hand, uh, cash flow, and, and they have plenty of working capital. In other words, they have a lot of discretionary money to do with it what they want. That's not the reality. 99.9% .9 of all the entrepreneurs we come across are struggling with cash, cash flow, and working capital. I mean, they're just, they're running on fumes. 
And, and the reason being is they've been sold this myth that a growing business is a successful cash rich business and, and it's not. So that's one of the, one of the biggest myths that I attack in the book as, as well as many others. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you brought this up because I, I think that many of us are in that same, that same situation, right? That many of us, especially as we're getting started in business, or perhaps we even have a, a, you know, a decent sized staff at this point, we're kind of at that same point. And I think that it's really, it, it's kind of sad that we, we have this standard that's been set by the world. And you're saying that some of this, these mindsets are decades old now that we're holding on to. So what do you say to somebody who might have to get real with themselves and say, okay, where am I actually at to evaluate? Is that a practice you say to go ahead and do before you start implementing some of the phases you talk about in this book? Or do you say just go for the phases, forget about like an assessment or anything like that? Yeah. So a couple of uh, thoughts on that point. And, and, and the first one is if, if you have an existing business, uh, you know, whether it's a month old or it's 10 years old, um, th there's this tendency to follow this business growth path. And in almost all cases, business growth means adding more clients, adding more contracts, adding more maybe products and services, adding more employees, adding, adding and adding. One of the things that I've discovered over my decades in business and helping grow companies is usually when you add a good thing, you add a bad thing. In other words, when you add a lot of employees, you take on a lot of HR issues. You take on a lot of challenges and frustrations. And, and not that we don't want employees. It's just we don't have to take on a lot to have a very successful and prosperous business. And, and, and so one of the mindsets from early on that I talk about in the first couple of chapters is how do you create more revenue from less resources? In, in other words, we're always, and I go through a whole litany in the book of, uh, we're always looking for more leads, uh, more suspects, more prospects, more contracts, more customers. We're always looking for more, and then we end up spending more to get more. We get more, but we spend or ate up all our profit getting it. And so even if we're bigger, we're neither better or more profitable. And, 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 and so that's one of the big failure points. And so you, you want to start at the very beginning, whether you're starting out a company or uh, if you have an existing one and start to understand where does a great business, a highly sustainable business come from? And it comes from and it always comes here. It always comes from solving a marketplace problem. And, and, and that's foundational to everybody. And it's interesting when I worked inside billion dollar companies, my first question is, why do you exist? What problem do you really solve for the marketplace and why should somebody pay you? And here's what's interesting. If I have six or eight executives in a room, I get six or eight different answers. There's oh, the problem. There's the problem. Right. That is a problem. And it's a widespread problem. You see it in almost every business you come in contact with. Entrepreneurs and business owners aren't sure why they exist or even the problem that they solve. Can you actually share an example or elaborate on this further? So here's what's interesting is, um, you started with a problem, but you never really framed it properly to come up with a different model or come up with a unique way to generate revenue with this problem. And so it actually happens in every company. And, and um, so we have to tie back and go, why do we really exist? Why should somebody care? And, and what should be different? Uh, you asked for an example, and um, I, I can give you one I'm working on right now. I, I formed another company around uh, what's called luxury tent camping. Called, I saw that. The term's called glamping. And um, one of the fundamental marketplace problems I found is the tents and gear and equipment coming out of Europe is about 10 to 15 years ahead of America. Um, the tents in Europe, 50% uh, now, don't have any metal poles. They use air tubes. 
They have windows. They have zones. So they've solved the problem of superior technology, but there's a fundamental marketplace problem here in America is access to those tents. You have to buy them through Europe. You have to go through distributors out of the UK. Well, that's a problem. So I started a business to start to solve that, but not a retail, not a, 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 a business with brick and mortar, but more of a digital platform to educate people, to, to make them aware of the issue, make them aware that things are there. And that's part of the process for somebody that owns a company, starting a company. Sometimes you have to make people aware of what the problem even is. In other words, most people, we were just glamping over Thanksgiving and people would come by our campsite and go, I've never seen a tent like this. And I'd say, yeah, it has air tubes. And they go, what are air tubes? <laughs> they didn't even know that there, there's product like this around the world. And so uh, our job as entrepreneurs and, and business leaders is to either uh, create awareness for the problem or frame the problem un- in a unique way. And in the book, I, I give uh, four different pizza examples, because uh, as you want to attack a market, if it's already a proven market and there's already competitors, you have to come at it from a different angle. You have to differentiate, separate, and motivate to use your model versus somebody else's. Right. And this is all in the first phase of your book called revenue ready. This is like the validation phase. And I think this is such a key point that many of us actually, we partially skip, perhaps we've seen somebody else doing well in the, in a similar space and we decide we can just kind of go after it, but it's so important that you really spend some time here. You call it the FMP foundational marketplace problem. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this because I think that this is just such a key point. When somebody's getting started, how do you recommend that they really start doing this this research, if you will, to figure out if this is the right place for them to be? Yeah, and, and uh, so at the beginning here is we look at the situation and we see a, a marketplace problem or marketplace opportunity and say, well, why isn't it being solved or how is it being underserved? And this really separates, this is fascinating, I talk about this in the book, this separates the small business owner from the entrepreneur. The small business owner says, oh, well, there's already somebody doing that. I can do that, too. The entrepreneur says, oh, there's already somebody solving that. I can solve it differently. And, and, and it's right there that really creates a path of, OK, are you just going to be like everybody else and market and sell and, and, and try and uh, eke out a uh, amount of profit or growth? Or are you going to attack this from a completely different angle? Are you going to truly be entrepreneurial? Um, and go about solving this differently? And if so, that's where the potential is. And, and, and that's where I encourage everybody to make sure that as they identify a fundamental marketplace problem, they actually frame it to say, well, why does it exist? Why doesn't it go? And, and, and I, I use the example just because everybody in the world eats pizza, that Pizza Hut solved the problem by creating dedicated brick and mortar restaurants for pizza. Right. Before Pizza Hut, that you, you always bought it in a restaurant with everything else. And then Domino's said, well, we don't want to get in the brick and mortar business. That's expensive. Why don't we uh, deliver it to your home and you can stay in your pajamas and not have to go out? And so each um, step, an entrepreneur looked at the, the pizza business and said, wow, it's a growing market. I want some of that. How is it not being solved or served properly? Or is there a unique or different way to satisfy the market? And make money doing it. You know, we this pizza example now seems so obvious to all of us, right? I mean, you think about it now, and it's like, oh, well, of course, like that—that that was an easy one. But when somebody decided to do that, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of criticism, like pizza by itself, that would never work, right? Like we think about it now because we can yeah. see it. But yeah. I think for many of us, when we're doing this same type of thing for ourselves, which one day I believe some of the ideas that the creating brand listeners have here today 
yeah, the things that they're going for one day, we're all going to look back and be like, wow, that was so obvious. I can't believe no one thought of it. Right. But when you're in that moment before someone's thought of it, it's, it's kind of unheard of and, and kind of scary, if you will. How have you gone about to actually do the validation process with something like this? Like obviously these pizza companies, they had to actually test this somewhere. How do you yeah. recommend people do that without maybe spending a lot of money if they don't have a, a big amount of capital? How can you start really testing to see if, if what you're doing is actually valid, if it really meets that fundamental marketplace problem? Yeah, so we've, we first look at it and, and, and we look for frustration. We, we look for uh, disappointment. We look for things being underserved. And, and I'll give you an example of one of the clients from years back. Um, they, they had come to one of my workshops and, and the CEO said, Kent, I, I, uh, I was down in Houston. I couldn't get through a toll booth because I didn't have the right change. And so I got stuck in the line uh, to pay the toll. And so I missed my kids championship soccer game. And he said, I've been in the technology space 20, 30 years. I think he was with Microsoft or somebody. And he said, I'm going to create an electronic toll system for rental cars so that people can quickly get through the toll booths at airports and on the tollways. And we have a lot of tollways in Texas, just like Florida and some other states. And, and, and so he came to me and he said, you know, nobody's really doing that today. Um, and, and so I'm going to make a technology play to figure out how to do this. And they went from um pre-revenue to uh they end up being sold i think for 12 million in just under five years wow and 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 it was all because and and this happens a lot for entrepreneurs is they've experienced something where they're frustrated they're 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 disappointed they're they're borderline angry and go wow i wish someone would if you use that phrase there's a good chance there's a market or Gosh, I just had this done or this service or I bought this product and I'm uh, and I'm left unsatisfied or disappointed. How could I solve that? And 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 why isn't it being solved? So that that's the genesis and the foundation for every business. And and we look at business and I use an example in there. I use some uh, I try to use all kinds of examples. I use uh, big well-known firms, I use client examples, I use my examples, uh, personal examples. But if we look back at uh, Apple, you know, way back, and most people don't realize Apple started in 1976, uh, their, their whole thing was looking at the market and, and IBM and, and I think Unisys, there were some other massive uh, uh, corporations that had computers, but they looked at it and said, you know what, computers aren't fun. Computers are kind of geeky and techy and you got to learn DOS and all this language and nobody wants to be a programmer. They just want to get on and have fun with their technology and their computer. And, and here's what's interesting is when, when you isolate or identify a, a great fundamental marketplace problem, you can ride it for years and, and you can generate billions and billions of dollars. We look at Apple today. They still make technology fun. Um, they're, they're from their watch to the, the iPhones. Um, they simply stay true to what they initially solved. And, and they, I, I mean, what have they made a trillion dollars over time? Uh, I, I talk about running into Eli Calloway on the, Eli Calloway on the airplane. And, and he was sharing with me, he just bought a company. Um, this is 25, 30 years ago. He just bought this company that had this new technology for golf drivers. And uh, he said, hey, you know, Ken, I'm really excited because we've, we're going to use a metal head and we've got some other uh, proprietary technology. But boy, oh boy, it'll uh, allow you to bomb the, uh, the, the golf ball off the tee box and hit it straighter than ever. And I said, gosh, you talk about a fundamental problem. <laughs> what, right. golfer, <laughs> what golfer doesn't want to bomb their golf ball past their buddies? 
And, um, you know, that was pure startup a few decades back. Today, I think uh, Callaway generates, he's, he's passed, he's a, a deceased, but I think they generate $2 billion a year. And they're number one in, I think, total iron, golf iron set uh, sales around the world. So th- those are some examples of fundamental marketplace problem. And here, here's what's interesting is um, there are more FMPs today than, than, than ever. Uh, uh, and, and even uh, the, the pandemics and the crisis, they create more uh, marketplace opportunities. And you have to look at, at them and you have to understand why they exist and is there any money-making potential from them. Um, but but there's three things in this first phase that I talk about, which is revenue ready. So once you find a, 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 a frustrating point, an, an area of potential, um, then you want to say, can I build a model that can satisfy that? Can I put together the sales, the marketing, the production, the delivery, the support? Can I build a basic model to satisfy that? And then the third principle inside this uh, first phase revenue ready is, how, can I make money doing it? So is there a problem? Can I solve the problem? And can I make money doing it? And, and, and if you can't answer those questions, stop. Don't, don't pass go. Stop. Those are so critical and, and, and so important. And they must, uh, the, the key here is there's a sequence and an integration. In, in other words, the revenue streams should support the marketplace opportunity. The model should support the marketplace opportunity. They should all fit. One of the, one of the, uh, the acid test questions to validate that phase. And, and, and Mark and I talked about this, gosh, back in the eighties, I was starting this side business and he said, Kent, if uh, the real test is if someone will write you a check for it, if someone, if someone won't pay you, you're not solving a problem that they care about. We'll get right back to today's episode, but first, can you do two things for me? First, if you're enjoying this episode, please share it on your social media or share it directly with somebody that you know that would also benefit from listening. Secondly, please visit creatingabrand.com slash free to join the Creating a Brand Inner Circle. This is where I share exclusive content, including online courses, how-to videos, and other resources focused on helping entrepreneurs go further faster. By doing these two things, you are helping me reach and serve more people. So thank you in advance for your support. And now let's get back to today's episode. I'm actually excited that you you went deep into this this first phase that you cover. I think it's so important. And we, we shared some examples of people that really have done it well. Now, when you go into some businesses, people are actually missing this first part, right? In some cases, like they're not actually hitting it right because people won't, like, won't give them a paycheck, right? They're not going to fill out a check and say, here, let me pay you for this. What do you say to somebody who's maybe in that area that they just haven't gotten it quite right? Do you believe it's something that you always need to be scrapping and just trying something new? Or is it kind of a lot of adjustments and, and, and re-going after and validating with the market? Yeah, great, a great question. And, and it really is a, a iterative process or it is a, uh, an, an evolving process of, of looking at a fundamental marketplace problem and, and uh, coming up with ideas and, and different ways to solve it. Um, one of the questions you want to uh, ask or ask those that could be potential prospects and clients is, um, how do we need to be different for you to pay us versus somebody else? What would you have to see from us and our products, services, offerings, and solutions? What would you, what would you have to see or, or experience to pay us and, and not pay anyone else? And, and, and so right in there, I want to give you one more important tip is, 
the answers are not in your head and they're not in your office. The answers are in the marketplace with your buyers. And, and it's so interesting, companies fail to ask those questions. I was, uh, I was in a, a company a, a month ago, and, and I, I asked the, the leadership team, I, I said, why, why should somebody buy from you versus your competitors? What, what, what makes you guys so different uh, that you become the clear choice? And they really struggled to answer that. And they really were kind of um, debating and thinking through it. I said, well, to make a lot of money, it's not going to happen in here. The money's going to come from the outside. It, it's understanding how the world is broken or, or not as good as it could be or not optimized. That's where your money is. But we've got to understand it. And we've got to pinpoint it. And then we have to go validate it. And, then, and that whole phase of revenue ready is validation. It's not validating. It's validation that says, you know what? We've done it. We, we, we've, we've framed a problem. And maybe I should expand on that. Framing a problem is looking at it from a certain angle. And, and let me bring this, I mean, right home. Podcasts. There are more podcasts today than ever. There are lots of people in podcasts. But but what's now the failing point with podcasts? It's not that there aren't any. Maybe there's too many. So now it's uh, how do we create podcasts that actually create change or transformation? What could be done uniquely or differently with podcasts? So um, a few years ago, there weren't a lot of podcasts. Now there are. And and a very not, uh, uh, another important point is. Uh, FMPs evolve. And so once they're satisfied, so so once now uh, podcasts reach a level of quality and caliber and content and all that, what's that next level? Uh, what can we do to change or what could you do in the podcasting business to change or um, take it to a different level? And, and I want to give you a, 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 some framing on how to do that. And, and the, the first thing is we look at anything, any problem and look at it being solved and say, is there a faster way to do this? Is there a way of speed or efficiency to do this better? And in your case, podcast, it could be the learning aspect. Is there a way to um, create a faster learning curve through podcasts and integrating other uh, services uh, in that way in the model? The, the next thing is from speed, we look at uh, quality. Is there a way to do them better? Is there a way to uh, increase the overall quality and experience uh, of a podcast or somebody's product or service? And, and then the next thing is uh, we want to look at another framing. Is there a way to uh, deliver these more cost effectively? Uh, I, I, we're on a, a video conference call right now, and I'll go back 10, 15 years. This was a $5,000 uh, conference call. With, with my, corporate, my corporate life in the 90s, uh, we would do these calls on occasion, but it, it, it would be five to $10,000. Uh, which is just ridiculous. A small company couldn't afford that. So those are the buckets we look at at framing. And then the final one is, is there a combination of speed, quality, or efficiency? Uh, is there a combination? And let me give you an example to package it all together and, and, and how important this is. Um, we go back and, and, you know, we've had retail for 100 years to give us choices all in one location. That model's now been blown up by Amazon, and now they deliver things faster, more cost-effectively, and the highest quality possible. They're firing on all cylinders. There, there, there's, no, uh, there's no real secret why Jeff Bezos is, is the richest man in the world today. He's looked at the problem and framed it from all different angles, and he's done a combination of framing and that has made him exceedingly, embarrassingly rich. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you, you really 
you really dove deep on this, Ken. I really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, talking about the, the speed, the quality, and making it more cost effective, and then finding a way to combine as many of those as you can. I think that's so powerful when we when we're looking at this FMP, this fundamental marketplace problem. That that's really so important there. So I think we've really done a great job covering this first phase, and we're definitely not getting through all four phases. We're going to kind of land here at the uh, yeah. That, that's what the book is for, right? All right. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to get into the, the second phase for a moment here, which is market ready, which is the preparation. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah. Here is the number one mistake in every single business I walk in or I get I get called in to, to help them go to the next level. Um, the, the teams, the people, the entrepreneurs or the business group or the, new, the division with a new product or service, they quickly go from some elements of revenue ready. There's a problem. We've got a model, a solution set. We know we can make money doing it. They, they, they just literally jump over to go to market. And now it's all about, all right, we fire up the, the marketing machine. We, we roll out the sales army. Uh, we start uh, the pipeline management and prospect management process. And there is nothing that shreds profit and, and, and your personal fortune inside a business faster than sales and marketing because every dollar is pure profit. And, and, and so when we jump, it, 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 if I can use an analogy, it would be like a, a country saying, I want to go to war with another country, and then they just go to war. Um, no one would ever do that because the casualties in war, it's, it's, it's life. But in business, the casualties are um, uh, lost revenues, lost contracts, turnover, frustration, toxic environments. Those are the casualties uh, of, a, of a company that doesn't follow a great roadmap. And so in this phase, I call it market ready, I literally fix, solve, rebuild, sometimes engineer, sometimes absolutely put everything in place, this particular phase. And then market ready is, is now our targeting. Who exactly uh, is experiencing the fundamental marketplace problem? And is there a way to segment, stratify, or uh, put them in a group so that we don't waste resources? The majority of companies are trying to be all things to all people, and they end up being nothing to no one. And, and, and the key here is you've got to make sure you totally understand who your perfect client profile is. I call it a PCP. And, and your perfect client profile and your targeting is both demographics, uh, uh, and that, that's the facts and figures, and then the psychographics, who buys and why, and then the characteristics of who really is a quality client. And again, that's that synergy of putting those things together so that you're targeting uh, that perfect client profile. This creates tremendous efficiency and effectiveness. That's optimization. If efficiency on its own is just doing things fast. Doing them effectively means you're doing the right thing as fast as possible. And, and so from targeting, then we move into um, the packaging. And the packaging is, are there ways to group our products and services to make them more attractive to the buyer so that they'll buy faster and they'll buy more. And I use a lot of examples from McDonald's to all kinds of companies that, that have just taken packaging to a different level. Real quick, I'll tell you a client uh, example, um, a staffing firm, staff augmentation firm. They were uh, selling uh, individuals, contract programmers to go on site and, and, and work on projects. And the CEO actually brought me into his sales call and he said, hey, I, I, we're meeting with a very a large multi-billion dollar company. It could be our largest contract ever. We want to place as many people as we can. We went to the meeting 
And, and after talking for a while, the, the CEO, my client, and we were talking to the, the, uh, his client, we came up with some packaging ideas for the executive team. At the end of the meeting, the end of the day, the company ended up buying a $5 million contract. That was the size of the company. It used to take them 12 months to generate $5 million. We generated that much in one meeting from using targeting and packaging as principles. And, and, and those are just two of, of being uh, uh, market ready. Then from uh, after that point, the next area, and if you want to go from a pretender to a contender to a player as fast as possible, it's really refining, defining your messaging, your messaging tool. I call them power messaging tools when they all start working together. But your messaging tools are everything from uh, your elevator pitch, your tagline, your company name, uh, your uh, website, your uh, PowerPoint presentations, everything that's a symbol, a message, uh, a, a logo, a sign. Everything is a messaging tool inside a company. If, if all of those messages don't help create demand for your unique, your unique offering or they don't help convert that demand into new clients, cash, and contracts, get rid of them, throw them out, don't use them, don't say them, because they're actually holding you back. It's like having a foot on the brake while you're driving. The last point I'll just move quickly to is, and this is another one of these sleepy areas that, that you don't have to work harder or smarter. You have to wake up the sleepy areas in a company. Almost every firm I walk into, they're using the classic 20 plus uh, percent model. In other words, here's what our costs are. We'll add 20%. It's within competitive range. That's what we'll sell our offerings for. That, that is probably the purest way to make the least amount of money. <laughs> Your brand and value. I mean, it's, right. there's no, it's all uh, I talk through is you should always be using multiple pricing strategies. Every company should give something away for free. And if you're like, oh, my God, we can't do that. We're in services. Sure, you can. Every business, every type of business can give something away for free. Uh, uh, and then something away that you lose money. Um, you, you go to Costco. I call it the Costco buffet. On Friday after uh, Friday evenings, they've uh, dialed them back now because of the pandemic. But you can go to uh, Costco on Friday afternoons, I think starting at 3 o'clock, and they have four or five, sometimes 10 kiosks of free food. Uh, you could eat your dinner there. Uh, then uh, you walk down one of the aisles, and they're selling their uh, roasted chickens for $4.99. Well, that costs them $6.50. They lose, I think, $1.50 on every chicken. They lose I think what is five or ten million dollars a year on on selling chickens? Why? Because it pulls people in the store, and and when people are in the store, if they get hungry, they leave. But if you satiate them just enough with some samples, they'll stay longer and buy a lot more. So, so those are really the the four things in, um, that you want to cover in your market ready before you really turn on your marketing and sales and start burning through uh, your cash and expenses and, and really your profits. You you want to go through uh, our our targeting, our packaging, our messaging, and then our pricing strategies. These are, this is a fantastic framework here. And there's actually a quote in the beginning of this section, this phase that I wanted to mention real quick because I liked it so much. Uh, to understand why your buyer buys what your buyer buys, you must see the world through your buyer's eyes. Well said. <laughs> I, I, I really like that. I think it, it really just reinforces the, the point that you're saying here. And the one that I really want to kind of weigh in on is really the messaging side of things. Because so many of us in today's world, we're told that you need to hire this out. And, and yes, I do think that you hit a point where you need to. But I've actually found that more effectively than me taking courses or listening to people talk about how to really clarify your message was actually me talking to 
my end user, the person who I thought would actually want to use it. When I got one-on-one with them as talking to them, I learned to articulate it better and actually found myself taking notes on how I was explaining it because it wasn't me explaining it to a computer screen anymore. It was me explaining it to a human. And when I did that, I was actually able to clarify and get that messaging much more positioned in a way that someone would actually understand what I was saying. Alex, absolutely. At the end of the day, your your buyer, your prospect, and, and even your client—they're uh, the validator. They're they're the judge and jury on the potential value of what you offer. And and I I'm not sure I can explain why. Maybe because people don't like rejection. We're hesitant to ask and and really listen. And and if we do anything at all, too many companies they use these surveys and these fill in the blanks or scoring surveys of one to five. And they never gather real uh, pure insight into the nuances uh, of what you're really bringing to the table. And, and a great example of that is, I can't remember the last company that I walked in and said, can you articulate what you do in a three-point value proposition? In, in other words, how is your client better for what they can do today that you could, they couldn't do before because of what you brought uniquely to the table? If if you can't articulate that, that is your core message. And, and if you can't, you've got to go back out to your clients and say, you know, how have we improved your world? What specifically? How is it, how is it better? Uh, top line, bottom line, or both? And if you're B2B or, or B2C, how, what, what did the experience actually mean for you? And then why do you think you're able to do that today and you couldn't in the past without us? And then, and then the final part of that is, what did you find unique about what we brought to the table? And on that last point, I have to tell you, so many clients have come back in shock and go, wow, what we thought was really important was not important to our client. And they actually shared with us what was most important. And I want to give you a quick example of working with a technology firm that they used to talk about their, their speed and their technology and their resources. I mean, they just they pounded that in on their website and all that. And, and we did a little, uh, some feedback loops with clients and, and like eight out of 10 came back and said, uh, no, you're US-based. Your, your leadership team is in the States and, and we know you outsource, but we're fine. A lot of companies, their leadership team's not even in the States. That US-based is what's most important to us. Wow. That company now, that's the thing they start to lead with is that we're US-based. And, and, and that really connects but in the past, they were just throwing things out there that they thought had value or, or validated uh, their differentiating model. Uh, but when we started actually asking, we got a different answer. And that's true in almost every company. That's incredible. Uh, Kent, I have to say, you have so much knowledge in this space. I mean, I don't know how many companies you've actually walked into, but I can tell this isn't your first time talking about this stuff. So um, <laughs> you've got some experience here, but I really appreciate you talking us through the first two phases here, revenue ready and market ready. And then phase three and four are go to market and own the market, which we're not going to get into today, but I'm going to give yeah. the, the listeners a way to, to grab a copy of the book. Uh, because you're so wise and because you've done, you're so uh, experienced in this space, I just want to ask you, have any final wisdom or words of advice you would like to share with us today? I think the, the biggest thing of all is that you, you, you should be following a roadmap. That don't, don't stop experimenting. And I watch uh, entrepreneurs, small business owners, big companies, they do so much experimentation. They throw things against the wall to see what sticks. Don't, don't reinvent the wheel, but at the same time, be innovative in how you do things. And um, the other thing, the last point is it's so critical that everybody works together on the path. 
Um, we got to get out of these functional roles. And real quick, I'll just share with you uh, an example I use in the book. Stop making marketing or sales totally responsible for lead generation or creating new client demand. It should come from every part of the enterprise. Now, we make marketing our sales accountable, but not responsible. And, and it's this team effort, this integrated team effort following a great roadmap. That's how you create wealth in a company by spending less time, money, and energy generating more sales, revenue, and profit. Ken, this time together has been so valuable. I thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you're more than welcome. I really enjoyed it. What Ken shared with us today is truly essential to growing a profitable business. You start by clarifying the fundamental marketplace problem that you solve. Then you define your perfect client profile. By doing these two things, you're positioning your business to become highly successful. I encourage you to take action by writing down and refining both of these areas of your business. Kent, thank you again for being a guest and helping us all succeed as entrepreneurs. To purchase a copy of Kent Billingsley's book, Entrepreneur to Millionaire, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 084. Thank you as always for listening. and I'm looking forward to bringing you another masterclass episode next week.